Congratulations. Welcome back. You've made it to episode three of the Blarney Pilgrims podcast, and you're very welcome. Today we've got a fantastic interview with Jamie Malloy, singer, concertina player, and all-around really fascinating storyteller. Um, when when I phoned him up to, to ask him if he'd do this, uh, he didn't ask any awkward questions, which was great. <laughs> he didn't ask us, like, what is this going to be? When's it going to happen? He just said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And we ended up talking for like nearly an hour on the phone. Um, that in the background, by the way, is uh, Darren's young fella uh, singing along with something he's doing on his iPad. Just, he said to me today, it's okay that just different, uh, different generations like different music. I like hip hop. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's him. That's him. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to so, do my usual begging and asking for you to please, please, please give us some positive reviews on iTunes. It's the only way that iTunes is going to recognize that we're a really good podcast and it's the only way they're going to share it on. So if you could take a couple of seconds out of your day on your phone or whatever you're listening to this on, just go head on to iTunes and give us a five-star review and a little written review for the episodes. That'll be amazing. And if you haven't checked out the episodes before this, go back, have a listen. They're also awesome. And don't be afraid to rate and review them as well. Thank you. <laughs> Magic. So so today's interview was recorded at The Last Jar in Melbourne. And without uh, further messing around, here's Jamie Malloy. In Newrytown, I was spread Stephen's green, now a lion's gone. I spent me time at the saddler's trade. I always was a roving blade. I always was a roving blade. At 17. Yeah, so I learnt that, that song back in about 1989 when I first started playing Constantina, actually, and a really good friend of mine lent me half a dozen CDs of Irish music and that was on one of them and I particularly liked the song because there's a couple of lines in there that just a bit about you know, my father cried I'm a darling son my wife she cried now I am undone, my mother tore her grey locks and cried and I just kind of remember seeing my parents actually behave like that, not to my behaviour but to some of my brother's behaviour when they were falling into bad times and, you know. So right. I, that song just resonated. Yeah. yeah. It just did. It was an interesting <laughs> one. When I first heard it, I went, oh, God, I remember that, you know, in my own family. You know, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, does it often <laughs> happen that you... I mean, does that draw you towards the song? Because that, that there's a concordance between... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that sometimes... No, yeah, definitely. Look, absolutely. Um, so... Like, I'm the keeper of our family history in my family. I come from a family of nine kids. And, and so I've got just reams and reams of information and photos going back 120-odd years and, and lots of stories from, from my relatives, you know, including that little ditty I gave you before, you know. Mm-hmm. That, all, that all came down. I remember my dad sort of teaching us about that. And, and Go on, saying, sing, sing that for us again. If they ask you what your name is, you can tell them it's Malloy. There ain't no fame, uh, born to fame, there's no shame in an Irish name, me boy. They ask you where you come from, you can tell them friend or foe. From Kalani's lakes and fells, in the land where the shamrock grows. So when did the Malloys come to New Zealand, and where to? So, um, so my... Original ancestor Joseph George Malloy. He came from the parish of St Francis, just north of Dublin. Mm-hmm. 
We think it was at about 1846. Uh, struggled to find the shipping records, but we know that he was, he came over, he was a militia man on one of the last ships to Tasmania bearing convicts to Tasmania. He was, I think it was the um, uh, 57th Regiment, the Lancashire 57th Regiment of Foot that he was in. They rounded them up and brought them over to New Zealand to fight in the Maori Wars in the 1840s. Now that was also famine times in Ireland in the 1840s, so you can imagine a young lad of 19 years old getting that opportunity. He was a tailor, and then he got that opportunity. It'd be interesting to know if he was pressed, actually, right. into that service, you know, mm -hmm. who knows. But a great opportunity to get out of what was going on in Ireland at the time. And lots of other people leaving at that time, of course, it wasn't unusual. Mm -hmm. He arrived in uh, New Zealand. We know he fought in the Maori Wars for three or four years. He ended up settling at a place called Tokoparu, which is up on the, off the Hokianga Harbour in the northern part of the North Island. And we know he also only lived to about 51, 52 years old, and he died in the Lunatic Asylum in Auckland. And probably a result of what we now call post-traumatic stress. If you fought for three or four years in the Maori Wars, you saw a lot of pretty brutal stuff. There was, uh, that was, they were serious battles. Um, he had a big family and a lot of that family ended up becoming, um, I know Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was born in 1875 and I remember him. He, um, you remember him? I remember him because he died when he was 101 in 1976, when I was 13 years old. And I remember him specifically because he used to manage some timber mills and he'd lost the middle three fingers on his right hand in the sawmills. And as a Christmas thing, when we used to go up to Auckland to visit my grandparents, he used to make all us kids shake his hand, which was a creepy thing to do. <laughs> Right, because he was missing his fingers, and oh, so and and interestingly, that whole family were apparently, according to my mum, they were all of very good humour. You know, they they loved a joke. They they used to have dances when my mother was young. She got taken up there, up to to Peru for a dance when my father was courting her, and she told me not long before she died that when I asked her, do you remember? when you were young, going to dances and that. And she said, I remember being taken up to meet Joe's family when we were courting, and they danced jigs and reels up and down the hall all night. And that's, those were her words. Yeah. You know, so, so that, that part of that family were, seemed to be quite social. Um, they had a lot of songs. I remember my great-aunts. I also remember my great-great-aunt Rose. She... Um, She was born in um, 1876. She was a Nocton. She was on my father's mother's side, actually. She was Norton. Um, and I, she, she died on the night before her 100th birthday, on the eve of her 100th birthday. And I remember her telling me about growing up in Auckland in the late 1800s, because I used to mow her carer's lawn. She was living with a carer, my great aunt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of stories like that. Right, yeah. right. So do you want to do take a run at that song again? Do you want this to be your first song, New Time? Do you want no, to do I don't actually. Okay. First song I want to do is um, the cover of Kildare because it always reminds me of one of my 
my aunties, actually. Um, so I had two great aunts, Aunt Mary and Aunt Kate. And Aunt Kate married a fellow by the name of Terence O'Reilly, uh, who was one of New Zealand's first fighter pilots in the First World War. And he died as a result because of his gas injuries. He died in about 1927, 28. And he was always poorly after that. But Aunt Mary had a, a love, a bow at that time. So this was in the First World War. And he, he went off to war and he never came back. But he was also never reported killed. And she spent the rest of her life as a spinster and remained faithful to her love for him. And I remember her singing this song um, when I was quite young. She used to sing it every Christmas because we'd have a family Christmas get-together. And she used to sing this song. And when she sang it, and as a young boy, I remember just the sense of sadness and loss that she evoked when she sang this song. And her very old female voice was... I don't know, it was something that just grabbed me and um, and it's the only song I remember of them singing although I know there were others, you know, like oh, Tell Me Ma, they used to teach us that and songs like that and all that, a lot of those songs just came down through the family mm-hmm. my father used to sing as well but really badly <laughs> he used to sing things like The Mountain of Morn, you know when, he, when he'd had a few whiskeys he thought he was a really good singer you know, yeah. so um, anyway Alcohol works for most of us in that. Yeah, I think, I think our confidence goes up quite a lot when we are uh, had, had one or two. Confidence and up and discernment goes down. It's only fair it. if you make sure everyone listening has the same amount of alcohol. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so this one's the colour of Kildare and, and this one's for the arms. Yeah. past and the summer's come at last and the small birds are singing in the trees and their little hearts are glad but mine is very sad since my true love is far away from me and straight I will repair to the colour of Kildare for it's there I'll find tidings of my day or the rose upon the bride by the waters running Brings joy to the linnet and the bee And their little hearts are blessed But mine can know no rest Since my true love is far away from me And a livery I'll wear I'll comb back my hair 
velvet so green I will appear All you who are in love I am cannot it remove I pity all the pain that you Experience lets me know that your hearts are full of woe, and it's a woe that no mortal can cure. And straight I will repair to the current of Kildare, for it's there. Fantastic, beautiful. So you sing that, and you uh, you look like you're gone <laughs> when you're singing that. I mean, uh, very, still still yeah. takes you. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. um, I, I I think one of the one of the things that I learned by being brought up around all my older relatives was uh, the importance of understanding feelings <clears throat> while also understanding how it's really important to be able to manage those feelings to keep living. When my aunt used to sing that, my great aunt, Aunt Mary, she, when she used to sing that, she always used to say to us, you know, you, you, mustn't, you mustn't live in the past and dwell on the past, but actually when she was singing that, that's exactly what she was doing. And when I sing that, I have a very clear memory of sitting cross-legged on the ground in front of this elderly woman in this big armchair in my, <clears throat> in my father's and mother's lounge room at this Christmas and being absolutely drawn in and captivated and feeling her decades of feelings of loss. And, you know, I mean, she was in her 80s when she was singing that to me as a young boy of 10 or 11 years old, you know. And I've just always, I think that's, that's always helped me understand the importance of finding feeling in music. You know, music has to have feeling for me, evoke feeling. So when did, you, when did you start singing those songs? Did you ever get a chance to sing too, or when did you revisit them? Oh, look, um, with that one, I, I never really started singing that one I always had it in my head as a teenager, but far more interested in other things as a teenager. I ask because I'm sure there was a. And, I'm sure with, with songs of that magnitude, there's a sense of are you going to get them right? There's intrepidations, particularly when they're, when these songs are attached to someone so so involved in your life. If it's a great auntie, and you're approaching these songs, and you're almost living some of her memories yeah. through the song. Yeah. Did, was, was there anything like that, or am I just reading in maybe a bit? Oh, no, more? absolutely. When, it, when I sing it, when I play that song, it's, it's always evocative for me of that particular person and that particular time. Um, I probably really started getting into that song in my 30s, which was about the same time I really started building an interest in my family history 
and the connections. And, and I suppose that was partly because I was starting to learn concertina um, and I felt a, a connection to something Irish. I didn't really know what that was. I'm a fifth generation New Zealand, for goodness sake. Yeah. On both sides of the family, you know, we've got McVeigh's and all sorts of names in our families. Um, but particularly started learning Irish music about then and, th- and that's when I started to realise that actually in my own family there was all of this uh, music that had actually come down through the generations. It yeah. was just passed on. Um, and I, I never really realised the value of that when I was a kid or a teenager. I remember being captured by it in a completely mm. innocent and you know way that, that had no judgement or anything. I just remember thinking, wow that's pretty amazing. I don't really know why or anything yeah. like that. And so I remember in my 30s when I, when I started singing that song seri- more seriously for myself, that, that's when it really started to, you know, that had meaning for me. As to whether or not I get it right or not, no, I've got no problem with that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it's slightly not right, that's cool with me. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure she'd be forgiving, it. but... Yeah. Since then, I've had a lot of nights where I've sat around playing guitar <clears throat> and singing a lot of old traditional songs with my aunties who are still alive. I still have a my mum's sister, she's 93, she's still alive, and whenever I visit her in New Zealand, I take my guitar and we sit down and sing a few yeah, great Scottish, Scottish and Irish songs together because she loves it, you know, great. and so she knows the songs. So. Whereabouts in New Zealand? Where? So I was brought up, I was born in Hastings in the North Island on the East Coast. We have very strong connections through my mother's father's family in that area. So James Wood, he came out in the 1860s, early 1860s, and started the first newspaper in Hawke's Bay. In fact, the first newspaper there it was called the Ahuriri Advocate, which was a political broadsheet advocating for separation of Hawke's Bay as a province from the government of Wellington. Oh, wow. So a bit of politics going on there. And then he started the Hawke's Bay Herald Tribune, which only closed in... 2006, that newspaper. Mm-hmm. So we have photos of him. <clears throat> so I was brought up there till I was 10. Then we moved back to Auckland. Both my mum and dad were from Auckland. Um, on my mum's mother's side, they're all from central Otago and, and Dunedin and that area. They were McVeigh's. They came out in, from Dumbarton in Scotland, but originally from Belfast. They came out in the late 1890s, so a bit later on. Mm-hmm. He was a ship's riveter. Charles McVeigh found his graveyard in St Anderson's Bay Cemetery in Dunedin um, so yeah there's there's a lot of relatives all through the South Island and the North Island. On the Malloy side there are Malloys through the north of mm-hmm. Auckland mm-hmm. and that area all so, over the place So when you start connecting with the music a bit in your, in your late 20s and 30s is there a space there where you're less interested? It's just not part of your life. You're just doing other things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so look. When we were brought up, we were all brought up t- to learn music. So I was brought up learning piano. I learned pia- classical piano. I learned clarinet and saxophone. And at Christmas time, we all had to do a song. It was kind of that thing. Um, and I think that was a tradition that re- well, it came down through both mum and dad's families. My grandmothers on both sides played piano and sang and. Um, I never knew my grandfather on my mother's side. He died in the war in the 1940s. Um, but, yeah, there was definitely no connection to Irish music through my 20s, through my teens and my 20s. 
So what happened? Yeah. What happened? Okay, so there were two triggers. Um, I'd always knew there was some kind of connection. In about 1984, I went to uh, Fiji, actually, on an old square rigger, sailed over there. And I was looking for a, a yacht to get a to work on as a crew member to come back and I got on this boat with this American guy and the boat's name was the Irish Rover. And this guy had American Irish ancestry or whatever and he played a lot of kind of Foster and Allen sort of stuff. Played a few jigs and reels as well. I don't know what the stuff was as back, you know, this is a long time ago now. But I remember there was a couple of moments there on the boat when I was listening to some jigs and reels from some band, I don't know who it was, and, and going, wow, that's really complex music, you know, that's, there's a hell of a lot going on in there. Um, and I thought that's, that's really interesting kind of toe-tapping music, it kind of grabbed me a little bit. And then nothing happened until 1989, oh, I beg your pardon, in 1986, uh, 86, 87, I went to Ireland. Right. And uh, and this was probably the epiphany moment for me with Irish music. And that was, um, I was staying with a guy, Pierce O'Shiel, who, who was a hitchhiker I picked up in New Zealand and had gone back to Ireland. And I looked him up. And I went and stayed with him in Scariff in East Clare. And uh, we went to a Christy Moore concert, actually, in a pub. And that's where I got a Christy Moore song which I'd like to play you later on. But um, he was playing me a lot of records, a lot of LPs of music from that time. Um, and again, something really grabbed me there. There was just something very, very deep. I, I can't explain it. We, his, his house was a very old stone cottage. There was a woman living there as well who was going through some terribly difficult times and I remember Pierce putting a record on and there was a, a song, I can't remember what song it was, but she was in tears. I'll never forget standing behind <clears throat> this woman. She was silhouetted by, by a window that just had rain coming down on the window, holding the, the bench and in absolute tears, bawling her eyes out about something. And, and I, was, I had this song going in the background and this was going on in front of me and I, just, I was just absolutely torn at that moment with the, the depth of, the, of something there with the, the music, the moment and all of that. And I, I, I can't really explain it. It's, it just was a really deep moment. A few days later, I went down to the Cliffs of Moa and... Uh, this was before they changed it all, you know, to the way it is now. And there was just a low stone wall at the car park below O'Brien's Tower. <clears throat> and I turned up there. I was just being a tourist. I'm still not playing Irish music, but really enjoying some of the stuff that Pierce had been playing for me. And, um, and that was Dedanon, Planksty. Those were some of the bands he was playing. Um, and Christy Moore. Um, but I went out to the Cliffs of Moa. And I, I took the bus out there, I think, got off the bus, and there was a guy in a sheepskin jerkin sitting on the wall with a mandolin playing tunes. 
I thought, oh, this, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, and I was kind of standing there like, like a complete idiot, really. I just kind of trying not to draw attention on myself, and I was the only person there. And he was sitting there with a cigarette in his mouth, quite a rough-looking guy, playing these tunes on his mandolin. And, and I was just listening to it going, this is, this is crazy, this is wild. Here I am in this wild, windswept <laughs> place. Nobody else about, and there's this guy sitting on a wall there playing his mandolin. I went, I went around the back of the wall and walked into the field behind him, which had quite long grass, went about 10 or 15 metres, and I lay down in the grass, and he stopped playing. And I thought, oh, OK. And I lay down in the grass. It was really nice because I was out of the wind. It was a sunny day. Um, and, you know, there were butterflies and bees and insects all flying around. It was really lovely and beautiful blue sky. And I kind of fell asleep, I think. And, and then a bus would arrive of tourists, and the tourists would all get out, and he'd immediately get his mandolin out uh. and play again, right? and put his cap out and earn some money. And so I, I remember lying there for a couple of hours and just listening to this music and just thinking I was in heaven. You know, this was gold. And um, so, and, and then after a while I got up and, and I, I went up to O'Brien's town. I bought a tin whistle. I thought, I'm going to try and learn this music. And I bought a tin whistle and then I wandered off. This guy had since gone by the time I came back. And I wandered off down the cliffs of Moa and I found a little spot, and I, and I had some tunes in my head from somewhere, I don't know where, and found them on the whistle, sitting on the cliffs there, and um, and I'll never forget that moment, just with my ass on the ground, just feeling, having lain in the grass there, you know, with all of this activity of music and insects and life around me, and just being, and that was it. From that moment on, I've just loved Irish music, and... From, and I didn't know what to do next. So that was in 80, 87 or something. Came back to Australia. Didn't know anyone who played Irish music. Didn't know anywhere it was played in Australia. And got a job out at Windsor in the west of Sydney. And there was a guy there. His name's Russell Serov. He's a flute maker. And he also played concertina and box and flute. And I just got talking to him about Irish music one time because I noticed he had some CDs next to his computer. He was our IT guy. And uh, he had some CDs of Irish music. I went, oh, what's that? what's that you've got there, you know? He said, oh, this and that. I said, oh, that's cool. I said, I really like the Irish music, but I don't really know much about it. And, but I've been trying to teach myself whistle. I, I bought one of those. Is it Sudlums? Sudlums, yeah. Yeah, Sudlums. Yeah, Sudlums those books, yeah, yeah. Classics of the Yeah, yeah. Day. Tin whistle tutor. Seriously, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's all I had. It. I was teaching myself and with my own. drawings, the cover, cover yep. this many holes. Yep. This yep. Many holes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yep. the one you're always reading, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in still, the car. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, you never stop learning, right? So uh, absolutely. Funny. So, yeah, yeah. Can I so, ask you something? Just uh, with that, you're in. We've only been gone a little while, but you're an incredibly visual person so when you speak you well you, you definitely put images in my mind very easily so mm. I can see these stories you're talking about is that something that you are you a visual person when you go to music to learn or to try to find a new song or yeah absolutely yeah I, look I guess by way of explanation um, I've been teaching people about 
the Australian bush for 30 years. And I've been very lucky to get a lot of ways of seeing from uh, Aboriginal friends. So, um, you know, a tree is not just a tree that has to be identified in the white fella's way. It's, it can be a source of tools or have, have a lot of meaning. So I've learnt, I suppose, to see things in a lot of different ways. And for me, the, in, the environment that I live in is very evocative. The music that I play is always evocative for me of a place or a person or something like that. It's, um, when I say always, it's not actually always. Sometimes I just walk yeah. in and play. <laughs> but certainly songs, you know, when I, when I sing songs, and I, it's the one thing I love about songs are the stories that they tell. Um, you know, the colour of Kildare, I, I visualise a colour you know, um, my love is far away from me. I've, I've visualised distance, you know. It's, it's, and that, for me, helps to get something of the expression of the story. You know, people aren't always literal mm-hmm. in the way they experience things. Some people are visual, some people are audio, audio or whatever it is. Um, and some people just like the words or the melody or whatever. But for me, it's a combination of all of that. Yeah. And they all have their part to play. So you want to try, you want to do another song? Sure. So um, the next song I'll, I'll give you is I said before that um, I was staying with this fellow over in Scariff, and uh, and I went to a Christy Moore concert, which I thought was really cool. Um, I didn't even know who he was at the time, but after that I sort of really got into his music because I just love what he sings about and his style. So the next song I'm going to give you is um, Maddie. This is my version, and I'll just um, play away. Maddie went out on a frozen night. He was making for the pub, shoulders hunched up tight. His head down on the railroad track, and his old Adelia sat going. Met with a dark and a troubled man as he passed him by, come back at him. Hey, Maddie, can't you see what's become of me in this country of the blind? The house I've left is dead to me, to me rhyming and me poetry. All I've got is a beat on the stagger, heading down the Caroline. Maddie passed by as quick as he could He couldn't stand such a crooked man sober All he wanted was the lights of a bar The nightingale and wild rover When he came in they were saying Oh he's back, did you deal? I drive you out with your spout And then you're swearing we don't want to hear about Bunker Hayden, maybe you'll sing us again Steadily as he handed him a pint of porter, said you must have seen the bishop's ghost tonight to put the dry look back in your eye. But Maddie would not be taken in by their jiving and regaling. He found himself a fresh-born crew, fell in with the spotted and the bailing. As he was going home from the very same spot. Met with this dark familiar 
He's saying I'm coming back down the line He was bright and strange and fine As he passed him by, Maddie threw out his arms Tried to grab hold of his likeness In the morning they found his frozen corpse At the butt of the Caroline At the wake they were lashing out the old Drops of brandy, the old-fashioned habit In the church they were lashing down Pounds and fibers, so many would be fine in the old by and by. That first trip to Ireland really moved me in a, in a lot of ways and gave me the incentive to get into the Irish music. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, interesting song. It reminds me of it's some kind of twisted version of Tama Shanter or something like that. You know, <laughs> somebody meeting somebody on a dark night on the way home. From, well, that's... The way, you know, it's, it's still... Yeah. It's really kind of an interesting... Abso- absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's, it's dark. Aye. Yeah, right. it's got right. a darkness about it, but it, but there's these moments of warmth, you know, like all he wanted was the lights of the bar of the Nightingale and Wild Rover. He just wants that warmth, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so yeah, it's kind of got a lot of things going on in that song. So so when you're um, in Sydney and um, uh, you get your first concertina, what kind of instrument is that? I mean, what like well, the actual <laughs> instrument? I, mean, I know what a concertina is. So I was talking before about a friend of mine, Russell Serov, who um, introduced me to some more Irish music. And uh, and I did express a, a sort of desire to him that I'd really like to learn some more music. And a friend of his gave me a banjo, which lasted about three months. I really wasn't that into the banjo. Because um, I started socialising with these guys. I started getting into this big this circle of people playing Irish music. It was fantastic. And so... Um, Russell played concertina and I think we were camped up at Nunes one time and and, uh, and I said, oh, can I have a go on the concertina and started, you know, trying to figure it out because they're crazy instruments. I don't know how the hell they came up with this design. But anyway, he said, oh, geez, you're taking it that pretty quickly. Do you, you know, and I said, yeah, I wouldn't mind learning this actually. And so he said, oh, I've got a spare one at home you can borrow. And he gave me this concertina that had buttons about the size of 10 cent pieces so, you know, really big fat buttons. Um, the bellows just were full of holes and had bits of sticky plaster on them and tape and all sorts of things. And I have to say it was probably still to this day one of the most crap concertinas I've ever seen in my life. It was awful. What you're supposed to say there is, you know, I've never heard a more beautiful sound than that. You know. No, no, it was shit. It was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, and, and, uh, and I knew it, but it at least... I had, I had it for six months and started learning really basic tunes, some waltzes and really simple jigs and very simple reels and hornpipes as well. And... Um, and I knew within six months that, you know, this was not the instrument to play Irish music on uh, in, in terms of, you know, just that particular model. And, and I did go back to Russell and say, look, you know, this really is 
you know, what have you done to me? <laughs> You've set me up. <laughs> so, so, so you have a concertina here. So, so give me yeah. a little illustration of what's crazy about this instrument. Is it the is it the well, it the structure of the like? It's the, one the of the notes? few. I, it's one of the few instruments that demands a bit of ambidextrous sort of thing going on in that you've got a kind of equal thing going on both sides. So you've got the instrument itself, you know, you've got the bellows movement push-pull, which is, happens mm-hmm. both sides. You've got buttons on both sides. And the buttons so, are, the left hand and, and right hand are both melody buttons. They're not... Yeah, well, you use them both for melody, okay. yeah, and you do cor- a lot of cording on the left-hand side and, and uh, you, can, you know, the melody runs both sides, definitely. We did a lot of sort of ornamentation both sides. So in that sense, unlike a guitar where you've got one hand, you know, doing the fingering down there and strumming with the other one, which are quite different actions, on the concertina you've got very similar actions. So I think it, I, don't, I must talk to other concertina players about this and perhaps there's a psychology involved here somewhere, but in terms of left brain, right brain, That's just it's, what I was thinking. Yeah, it's just so it's really weird. Really makes it it's a weird instrument, I reckon, but uh-huh. it's the most beautiful instrument it must, as well. It, it, yeah. It'd be interesting to think that, that, that the, the fact that you're, you've got this... Um, crazy um, both hemispheres of the brain firing exactly. at the same time must bring you to a whole other dimension of a transcendent yeah. brain. Yeah, I, I, I hate to think what it does to us <laughs> <laughs> in terms of rewiring the brain. Uh, 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 needless to say, you know, Constantina players are lovely people, you know. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, not, not saying anything disparaging about Constantina players. Yeah, um, yeah so anyway, I, I, I went on from that instrument to, right. to another one. I, uh, I got pointed in the direction of a, a retired Catholic priest, actually, who was a concertina player, and he had one that he was getting rid of, and I, I bought that. That was a national concertina, 31 button, um, and that was a really beautiful-sounding instrument. Um, but like a lot of those instruments, they, you know, they're not particularly fast, and, and a lot of the Irish music is really fast. So I had that instrument for two or three years, I think, and then ended up buying a, a concertina made by Jürgen Suttner, the German maker. And when you're talking about fast, you're talking about just the mechanics of the machinery. Yeah, the mechanics of the machinery. The, the, that's exactly yeah. right. So yeah, they actually the, moves slower. So is it, like, like yeah, the yeah. On a piano so, so there's yeah, a lot right. of a lot of parts in a concertina from the way the valves lift off to let air through, the 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 the, the way the reeds respond to the air passing over them, the action of the buttons, the you know how fast they return to their position, um, how how much pressure you've got to put on the button, how much travel there is in the button, yeah. all of those things. There's a, whole, a lot going on in Constantine. Because I was wondering, when you mentioned your first one and it had the, the huge buttons and it was holes, oh, and yeah. then you mentioned it wasn't set out for Irish music. Since then, I've been going, well, what about it? What, yeah, what yeah, no, it? just big fat buttons, very, very slow so instrument, slow. no air in the bellows. Same so. for a waltz, maybe. Yeah, look, okay for bush music, you know, like Australian bush music, yeah. when you're playing tunes quite slowly and... And that, but definitely not for so playing the Irish music. Would I've you give us days. a? Would you give us a wee? Sure, I'll give you a tune. Spin. So, um, so these tunes I'm going to play. Um, do you know the names? Do yes. You know? Well, these are a couple of Junior <laughs> Crean's tunes, actually. Yeah. So I do know that these are both Junior Crean's tunes, and I got these um, from the plane of the Mulcahy family. So Mick Mulcahy and his daughters Louise and Michelle, mm-hmm. who I've since met since I learnt these tunes. And where are they um, from? Um. They're from County Clare. Right. Yeah. Um, really fine musicians, that lot, and lovely, lovely people. I haven't met 
Mick, but I've, I've met Louise and Michelle. Um, and I hope I do the tunes justice. I mean, they play them absolutely beautifully. And I've always loved these couple of tunes from the very early days of playing concertina. So these are a couple of junior Koreans. Actually, I went off, I started going off on a, a bit, of, bit of a strange 
tangent, I think you've had some effect on me visually anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm being very, very visual tonight. You mentioned whatever you do at work, you work in the Australian bush, or you, yeah. you, you mentioned that, and it's given you an insight into um, maybe a, a looking from an um, indigenous <clears throat> lens to some extent. Only a little bit. Okay. I would not claim yeah. to, yeah. to, you know, I, I've, I've been very lucky to be given some little bits and pieces here and there from some really good friends who have just given me a different perspective on on the bush, I guess. Because where, yeah. I, where I went, I was thinking about where this music sits in in the in the timeline of, of Australia. Obviously, it, yeah. I think Irish people, when we hear words like... Um, like we hear imperial ideas of mm. and colonialization. Like the uh, Irish music is not from this country. Mm. And then I just I just kind of started thinking. Well, what does it? What role does it play in that? In that? Yeah, I haven't got a I haven't got it formulated to the. I'll give, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little story. Yeah, <laughs> I'll give you a little story. Um, it's, it's a New Zealand story actually. So um, I had no idea about this. I was travelling with my wife and kids at the time up from Wellington up through the country there and we stopped at a place called Levin. We went past this um, place that said uh, Mary wood carving, right? And, I, and so I said, oh, let's go and have a look. So we stopped in. It was kind of a... There was nobody there in this car park. And we went over to this building that sort of wasn't particularly attractive or anything, but... We could see inside there were some pretty big carvings and things in there. And then we heard this noise and we went over into this workshop and there was this guy in the workshop, this old Maori guy. And, um, and, I, and he said, oh, g'day, how are you going? You know, I'll listen. And he said, um, and, I, and I saw him carving. I said, oh, I've got this instrument in the car. It's got beautiful woodwork in it. It was my concertina. And he said, oh, go and get it, mate. You know, let's have a look. So I went and got it and he said, oh, Marry piano. I said, what? Marry piano? What are you talking yeah. about, mate? You know, and he said, yeah, we used to call that a marry piano. Wow. And, and, um, and he said, I play Irish music. And he reaches over the back of his, his workbench, yeah. pulls out a ukulele, right? And he sings, he sings um, oh, geez, what did he sing? Um, it might have been a Tell Me Ma or something like that. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, you know, when we were kids, we were all brought up with Irish music. I'm going, far out, you're this Maori guy, master woodcarver. He was yeah, a master yeah. woodcarver, famous New Zealand Maori woodcarver, you know. And, and, uh, and here he was talking about the Irish music. Now, there was since a book written by Dan Worrell, this American guy, about the social history of the concertina. Wow. There's two volumes of it. And Only two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go overboard. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he writes in New Zealand about the concertina being known as the Maori piano and how when it arrived in New Zealand in the late 1800s, Maori people took it up and actually started using it in some of their um, ceremony and their protocol on the marae. So um, that was a really fascinating thing yeah. for me about that connection. So when you say, yeah, Irish music isn't part of Australia's longer history, uh, we've all adapted. Mm. Even Irish music has adapted over many years. You know, the, the period when Cayley bands became really big, you know, from I think it was about the 1920s, 30s, wasn't it? The, oh, yeah. the, there was a real change in the music. And then 
from the 60s and 70s when traditional music started really picking up again. Yeah. But when you look at Irish music and, you know, read some of the the, the history of it uh, and you read about how a, many, many of the reels are not Irish in origin, they're Scottish in origin, you know, or... Um, and then there's all the connections through to places like Brittany and northern France mm-hmm. and they, the Celt- Celtic sort of origins there. So everybody's borrowing from other genres all the time, you know, and, and that's okay, I'm okay with that and, um, you know, that's the way music is these days as well. So personally I'm not into this kind of fusion thing, you know, the world music fusion stuff, yeah. but... But I think it as well... a lot of people to fusion. It seems to be a uh, reoccurring yeah. thought. Which yeah. I'm, 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 it all has its place. Yeah. yeah, just not everyone likes to be in certain places. But but I think as well, you know, that way of seeing things. I went back to Ireland in um, 2005, and and I was a ranger in national parks in New South Wales at the time, and I was trying to organise a ranger exchange. So a ranger from Ireland would come out, and I'd go to live in Ireland in bliss for a year, you know, <laughs> playing music and drinking Guinness or whatever. And um, and I got taken to a place where uh, I got taken to a lot of places that most people don't see because I was very lucky to set up a lot of contacts with the Irish National Parks people and I arranged a lot of visits with places, did some radio interviews there and stuff like that, blah blah. But I got taken to places that uh, and there's there's some places I will never ever forget. One of them stays with me through a lot of my music, and it was in a, a Hazelwood valley there were badger sets but there was also a famine road there and cover flagstones you know covered in moss and and through through there you could through the woods you could see the remnants of you know some low stone walls and somebody had lived there at some point and the whole place was you know it was a cold misty sort of a day and it and I, and I remember walking through there and I had this connection back to this old Aboriginal guy who taught me how to see trees and looking at this place and just suddenly feeling like it was timeless, like a centuries old of people in this place. And it was saturated with human history is the only way I can describe it. And I'll never forget that, that road that just ended down there, never went anywhere. Yeah. And the futility of the people working on it, the lives that were lost. It was just saturated with human experience in there. So sometimes when I'm playing a... And it was dark. It was a really dark place, you know. And sometimes when I'm playing tunes, that that, that place always comes back into my head, you know. So connection between, you know, Indigenous people of Australia, for me, back into a place in Ireland... There was some. There's, there's connections all over yeah, the world. Yeah. We're all connected. And then you, you mentioned your ancestor coming to New Zealand to fight in the Maori Wars. Yeah, as well. Mm. I mean, which is another whole thing about the notion of the uh, Irish as a colonised people becoming colonisers or becoming tools of the colonizer. I don't know how you, how you want to describe mm. it, but you know, it's just it's, it's complex. The whole thing is very complex. And how do you deal with? How do you deal with the reality of that? It's a, it is hugely complex. Um, and I don't and, know. And, and, I, and, and for me, I, I, I sort of think back to Joseph George Moy being a 19-year-old, a bloody boy, basically, mm-hmm. coming out with a 
musket in his hand, you know, and um, arriving in New Zealand, my God, you know, in the 1840s, geez, the place was really only starting to get settled for the previous 10 or 20 years. There were only a few thousand white fellows in New Zealand, you know. So, and and, that, and straight into the thick of, of Māoridom, you know. So, um, must have just been an incredible experience of, you know, and a lot of hardship. There wasn't a lot of food around. Crikey, they, they had to learn to eat things they'd never considered eating before, I'm sure, you know. So, But I guess I can reconcile some of that in my own mind. Um, you know, Uncle Frank, when he was 18 years old, he married a Maori woman. She died in childbirth, uh, a, you know, nine months later, a year later. And um, But we still have, you know in the family tree, I've got the whole family tree going right back there and through my mother's side one of those original ancestors had a surname of Green and they married into a Maori family in um, uh, Natiporo country up in around Gisborne and there's a whole heap of relatives mm. through there with Maori names so Irish people married right through indigenous cultures all around the world and brought some of their culture, learned some of that culture. A lot of it was not good. There was a lot of really bad stuff went on in Australia and New Zealand. It happened in those colonising times. But there was a lot of good too. I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about uh, about bush yeah. dancing and bush music and, oh, yeah. and stuff. So, so you know, it, it is um, in, um, in most of the people that we've been talking to, they mentioned this period here in Australia yeah. from, I don't know when it, when it would be, the 80s, I guess, mid-80s, is that about right? Where bush dancing becomes a big thing here. And Okay, well, that, that's a really good question. So um, I've been very lucky. I, I helped run a festival called the Nariel Festival, which is Australia's so oldest that, folk yeah. festival, so. yeah. And that's up in um, the Upper Murray, northeast of Victoria. Um, and so I'll just put that lens over it where... We still play music up there and hold dances that go back to the late 1800s. And there are families up there, Simpsons, Clipples, Audishers, um, who have been playing that music for three or four generations. Now, I can't speak on their behalf, but I can only speak through my own experience. So I'll just make that little disclaimer there because I respect their knowledge and their ownership of that material as well. Um, but there are books written about the narial music. And, so, and what characterises that? Um, so the narial music's really interesting because it's a blend of whatever people picked up from wherever. So there's a lot of Irish influence in there. We still do a lot of, you know, dances um, that, that where we play reels and jigs. Um, but there are some German influences there. Yeah, there's even the American influences from the 1920s and 30s. So there's, you know, we do all sorts of crazy stuff. There are mashups in there of all sorts of genres of music, uh -huh. you know. And that's what makes it really interesting. And there's also a lot of original music that um, has been inspired by whatever people have learned. I play that stuff on the concertina. Mm. You know, including some of the original music from that area. And is there accordion music? I think. Yeah, it's that's it. right. They they played a lot of that music on the single row, uh, melodians actually. A melodian. Yeah. Mm. In C, in the or key of C. Melodian. Yeah, melodian. Yeah, yeah. Melodian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and and those bands, you know, I think 
I think in the history of that music, you know, pe- people were few and far between in the 1800s. And people travelled, you know, they didn't have TV, they didn't have any electricity. And so music and storytelling and conversation were a very big part of the social fabric of their lives. And, and food and cooking and all of that, because it was all about survival. And the, and the social aspect was all about survival of families as well. So music, really important part of that early social fabric. Um, in Australia, I think there's an incredible history and still alive today of this evolved Australian bush music. Um, there's some amazing bands around and you know they have electronic keyboards in them now and drums and whatever but they're still playing you know quite faithfully um, the old dances it's all based around the dancing in the same way that Irish music is actually all about the dancing really it's not just about the tune it's about the dancing and so it's the same with the Australian bush music that is all about the old time dancing traditional dancing so the things like the gypsy tap the pride of Erin the lances, you know, all of these things, progressive barn dances, etc. We still play old-time dances up there, the alcohol-free dances. We have the supper in the middle, and they go to two or three in the morning. There's a book written about all of that by um, Harry Gardner and Peter Ellis, both of whom have now passed away recently. And the book is called Music Makes Me Smile, because that music, those dances have kids from half a year old to 95 years old. Yeah. And when you see them dancing, they've all got a big smile on their faces, you know, and that music does make you smile. That is, that is something else. It's gold. Like when I was living in Scotland for 20 years, the Kayleys, uh, yeah. at weddings, yeah. the, the wedding Kayleys is, is something else. It They're is a something hoot. Else. It's, <laughs> there's nothing like it for, yeah. for getting every single person up yeah. and, and sweating. Yeah. That's Actually, I've got a, I've got a, a really cool thing. song called Down the Hall on a Saturday Night. It's a Kiwi song, and uh, it got taught to me by a friend of mine, um, Ken McMaster, who just passed away. He was a New Zealander and a holder of many, many folk songs and, and folk history, a bit, of a bit of a loss, really. And we did a CD together last year. It was, it was called Ken McMaster's Back, right, which had a picture of his back on the front cover. Um, but it was really his... He wanted to get those songs down before he passed away. He knew he was going, so... And he taught me that song, you know, down the hall on a Saturday night. It's a cracker. Do you want to really? go for it? Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'll have to dig the words out. Can you give me that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I sang it at his funeral, actually. Oh, look at that. Oh, there you go. It's meant, meant to be. Meant, I was going to say. <laughs> it's meant to be. Yeah, so this, um, so this song's called Down the Hall on a Saturday Night. It's a New Zealand folk song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just all about, you know, the old-time dancers. So I'll give it a crack and see how we go. This is, I'll dedicate this to Ken McMaster who taught it to me. And um, yeah, thanks Ken. Tied up me goo 
Soon as I've swept out the yard Soon as I've hosed down me gumboots I'll be living it high and living it hard I'm gonna climb onto me tractor I'm gonna belt her right out of the gate Cause there's a hop on down at the hall And she starts shop somewhere about a half past eight Look at the sheilas cutting the supper Look at the kids sliding over the floor Look and a great big bunch of jokers Are hanging round on the door got the teacher to bash the piano We got Joe from the store on the drums And we're slick as the orange in Auckland For hooping it up and making things hum I had a Scottish with the tart from the butchers I had a waltz with the constable's wife Had a beer from the keg on the cream truck and the cop had one too, you can bet your life Yeah, it's great being out with the jokers When the jokers are sparking and bright And it's great giving cheek to the sheilas Down the hall on a Saturday night Down the hall on a Saturday night Very good. Talk about being visual, man. You're definitely, you definitely, you set a scene. I love it. L laterally, you've been involved in, in a project called the Good Girl Project, yeah. right? which sort of draws on a lot of these historical interests that you've mm. been talking about. Yeah. Um, we, I should say we're in the last jar, <laughs> and it's Wednesday night, so you can hear from downstairs. Uh, it's a lovely sound. Great music. It's a lovely sound, Dom. It's a fantastic session. It reminds me of... You know, uh, Reminds me of that story about J.M. Singh going to the west of Ireland and hearing, he, see, you know, he, he said he heard the authentic voice of Irish people talking through the floorboards of the boarding house where he was staying <laughs> when he went upstairs to bed. But, uh, so anyway, there, there you are. So um, back, to, back to you and, sure. and the Good Girl Project. So it, it does draw on your kind of historical interests, right? Yes. And so yeah. can you tell us a bit about how you became involved in that work? Sure. So... Um, so I and guess, what it is, actually. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what it is first. So the Good Girl Song Project is um, a project that was inspired by the works of an author by the name of Liz Rusham. Uh, she wrote a number of books um, about the stories and the, the context of young women that were brought out to Australia in the 1830s. They were sponsored to come out, so they were free women. They weren't convicts. And that was, that's a really important point. Um, because if you can imagine the 1830s in Australia, it was full of convicts. Uh, times were hard, really hard. It was an establishing colony. So these young women um, were sponsored, often by the parishes that they came from. They came from Ireland, Scotland, England. There were ships that came out from Cork, um, from Gravesend and places like that. Um, and they came to Tasmania and Sydney, principally. Um, I got involved in that project. A friend of mine, Helen Begley, has written all the songs. 
and she she had been performing those songs with a, a very fine singer by the name of Penny Larkins uh, for a couple of years, and she wanted to she called it a song cycle, but she wanted to see it evolve a little bit. So she got she rang me up and said, oh, I, "I need a man in this good girl song project." So when she described it, I went, "What do you want me for? You know, I'm not a, not a girl. It's a good girl song project. It's about the women." But she needed someone to be the the foil, if you like, the patriarch. So I got the job as the bloke. Um, but she also wanted the sound of the concertina in behind some of the songs, which was really interesting. Um, she also got another person involved. That's Penelope Swales, who's a whistle player, singer, guitarist, fine musician, songwriter. Just recently won songwriting award this year at the National Folk Festival, actually. So good on you, P. Um, so, yeah, Helen brought the four of us together and we've, we all kind of contributed under Helen's direction and we've now got this production that we've been performing at various festivals around the place, um, telling the stories of these, these women and many of the lyrics, much of the spoken word that we do, so, so we get dressed up, we're, in, we're frocked up, in costume of the time, we have some spoken word, we act out some stuff on stage, and we have a lot of music in there. And a lot of the material that we use is original from that time. So they are words from the letters that these women wrote back home, or words from the advertisements that were plastered onto you know, walls and things, trying to find women to come and do this stuff. And they so, were coming to, to work and... So, well, this is really interesting because for, for the women to get passage, they had to pay. And so, um, so the government sponsored them half of the passage and then they had to find the other half. Um, for, for some of them coming out, it was getting out of the workhouse. So this was the biggest opportunity they had in their lives. They had no idea where they were going. They might as well have been going to the moon. They were going to Australia and completely foreign country. There was a, a there was a London Immigration Committee was formed. The women who went were aged between 18 and 30. They were unmarried women or widows, and they had to be of good health and character. That was really important. There was a reception when they arrived, but there is. The final part in our show is actually about how they arrived to two and a half thousand men on the pier waiting for these boatloads of women. At the time, one of the purposes of bringing these women over was to balance the equilibrium of the sexes. And, and I'm giving you some lines out of the performance, actually. So, um, you know, the great object of importing young women is to restore the equilibrium of the sexes, to raise the value of female character, and to provide virtuous homes for the labouring classes of the community. So that was the purpose, and those are the original words from that time. So they came out and ended up being into all sorts of professions. We don't know a lot of the stories of what happened to these women, but some of them... Um, there's In Melbourne at the moment, there's an excavation going on where the uh, Jackson Hotel is, on the corner of Swanson Street and Flinders Street, and they've excavated the footings of the school there. The woman who set that up was one of these women. Right, so there's one story. Um, 
they they were farmed out to families to work as housemaids. Some of them went on to establish businesses. They they were actually an incredibly important part, in my view, of de- developing Australia's economy at the time because they were free women. Many of them established businesses in millinery or all sorts of things. So they were an important part, and they're an untold part. As um, as Penny said today, we did a showcase today for Regional Arts Victoria this morning, actually. Um, and as Penny said today, one of the one of the really interesting things about the show is that it's actually telling those women's stories. And she said, you know, men's history is written down, but women's stories are told and, and, and are spoken about. And that was, I think, a really interesting comment that she made. And so this show is actually bringing some of those women's stories out to the audience. Um, I'm incredibly proud to be a part of this show because Helen's songwriting is just absolutely beautiful it is evocative as well yeah. uh, it's an amazing piece of work where and it's the only performance i'm going to spruik it a bit here but it is the only show that i know of that consistently gets standing ovations at folk festivals now usually folkies can't be bothered standing <laughs> at the end of a gig but this show brings people into a lot of emotional spaces so it does people people are really moved by the show because it's very it's very powerful mm. uh, in describing that and and describing um before you sang the curl of Kildare, yeah describing remembering your your great aunt and mm. um I, I can relate this to my own experience there are times when i'm thinking about um parts of my own personal past relating to people mm. where um where the the power of the past is almost overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, do you ever feel that when you're like What right do you in mean by that though, Tom? Sorry. Well, I just feel like I feel at times like for me personally and and I've never suffered any trauma mm. or anything, so I'm not comparing Yeah, not, my not that way. Yeah, yeah, sure. No. But the intensity of my remembering is is like I'm I'm uh, falling into <laughs> into a whirlpool. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, and and it can it can, I can be sucked in there for like a day or two. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I it, think it's so yeah. it's so intense. Yeah. Um, okay. I th- I think I know what you mean because, like I said right at the start of this, um, I made a real effort in the last fifteen to twenty years to start collecting the stories of my old people, and I would encourage anyone listening to this. If you've got old relatives, take the time out to go and ask them, what was it like when you went to school as a kid? How did you get to school? What did you have for breakfast? What did you do in the evening after school when you were 10? And if you ask those stories, not only does it make you realize how bloody lucky we are and how we take so much for granted these days, but also when you talk to those people and they start opening up they start to give you your own sense of place where you are you're connected now back through generations so i started to tell i mentioned my great great aunt rose and my my youngest daughter evie her middle name is rose after my great great aunt when i was 12 years old she told me what it was like in auckland when krakatoa blew up in indonesia right and she told me what it was like in auckland when she was a 10 year old girl in the late 1800s 
Now, I pass those stories on to my kids. Here we are in 2019 telling stories and memories of someone from the late 1800s. So there's, you know, those connections for me just... In, 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 in the Maori world, you know, you have this thing called mana. And mana, very much part of mana is knowing what, what they call your whakapapa, which is your lineage and knowing your history. Not everybody has that, and, and that's okay too. But for me, there's an incredible sense of security and knowing my place in the world by knowing my old people and knowing and respecting my elders and, and learning from them their way of life and bringing the values and behaviours that they had into my own life and teaching those to my kids because they were good people, really good people. They cared for other people and looked after other people and looked after the places they lived in. So for me, there's an incredible power in, in, in respecting our, our older generations. They don't even have to be related to you, frankly. It's just taking the time out. You know, their time isn't long and their memories will go, but you can learn a lot from them and, and, and that's actually what tradition is about, isn't it? Passing on the tradition, yeah. Yeah. you know? It's actually entirely what traditional music is about. Absolutely. You know, it's... Um, it's about teaching younger people to play music and, and getting them to value it and, and seeing the value in it. And so that's, that's an important thing for me, um, you know, with the traditional music as well. So it does kind of come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Could we have one more tune? Maybe we'll go out on, on, on one final tune. Have you got one or uh, a song? <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I, I might play something I learned fairly recently, but it's actually a tune that I play in the Good Girl Song Project. So we have this little um, little uh, part in there where, you know, we talk about what the women did on the boat, you know, and, we, and it's actually about a, a young woman was writing home and saying, you know, in one corner there are, are girls talking about, you know, the scandals on the boat of the sexual exploits of some of the women with the sailors because there was that stuff going on. In another corner was a group of women reading the only book they were allowed to have, and in another corner were a bunch of Scotch women dancing and playing and dancing Scottish songs. So I'm just going to play now. I, this is, I think, um, a Con Cassidy's tune. I think I'll just play it anyway. Um, and I got a fairly recently off a recording that Artie McGlynn was playing guitar on. It was beautiful guitaring. And I forget who was playing fiddle and, and box on it. But anyway, I'll play the tune for you.
Well, there you have it. Episode three done and dusted. That was that was great. Um, look, end of the podcast. Just going to remind you, please, please, please leave that five star review. I'm sure you probably got lost in the interview. I know I did when I was actually chatting with Jamie. Um, on top of that, Facebook, Instagram, all the kind of places that these kind of things live. Come follow us. Make us feel like we're doing the right thing. Um, quick thanks to the last jar in Melbourne for putting us up. Um, yet again, giving us a use of the room there. Thanks to Chris and to Brian and everybody there, and to the musicians on the Wednesday session, um, uh, who are all very supportive. It's just a really interesting, fun place to be on a Wednesday night. And there's not a lot of places you can say that about. Um, and that's it. Thanks again to Jamie Malloy. Catch you uh, next time. See you next time. Dominic and Darwin five stars.